A quick thank you to everyone who signed up as financial supporters via Patreon. If you want to continue hearing this content, please sign up for only four US dollars, three pounds or three euros a month. Check out the various options at coldwarconversations.com slash donate. Now on with this week's episode. And then there was this kind of very tense moment where the damaged war spite and the damaged Russian Echo 2 were both on the surface looking at each other, inspecting each other through through periscopes and wondering what was next. This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app so that you don't miss out on future episodes. Today we speak with Ian Ballantyne, the author of Hunter Killers, also known as Undersea Warriors in the United States. Hunter Killers tells the incredible true inside story of the Royal Navy's Cold War beneath the waves. Ian and I talk about the forgotten role Royal Navy submarines played in the Cuban Missile Crisis, whilst also hearing the truth behind what official statements called collisions with icebergs. We also cover the processes and procedures of the Polaris nuclear missile submarines, including the letters of last resort. Now, I could really do with some help to allow me more time to continue producing and preserving these Cold War stories. A monthly donation to help keep us on the air is only about $3, £3 or €3 a month although larger amounts are welcome too. Plus, you can get this sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a monthly financial supporter, and you bask in the warm glow of knowing that you are helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com donate. If a financial contribution is not your cup of tea, then you can still help us by leaving written reviews wherever you listen to us, as well as sharing us on social media. It really helps us get new guests on the show. I'd like to thank some of our recent reviewers on Apple Podcasts, particularly Kevin B., Neil Greggs and Sergeant Ellis for their five-star reviews. Thank you so much. So, back to today's episode. I'm delighted to welcome Ian Ballantyne to our Cold War conversation. There were lots of boats that were, I would say, built towards the end of the Second World War that they tried to squeeze more life out of. And then um, as the post-Cold War era dawned, the Royal Navy was fairly strapped for resources, so they persisted with them and decided they would build on some of the advances in technology that had been achieved by the Germans uh, with their revolutionary U-boats like the Type 21, uh, at the end of the Second World War. Right. And the Soviets, did they have access to some of that Nazi technology as well? Yeah, generally what happened was at the end of the war, the uh, the booty, should we say the su- submarine booty that was found uh, in various harbours or submarine construction yards uh, was divided up between the victorious allies. So the Russians got some 
the Americans got some, the British got some, the French and one or two other nations that were interested were also able to tap into this technology. So they were each given a share of the most advanced vessels, which included the Type 21 U-boat. And although the Type 21 had only managed to complete two combat uh, deployments in the war and uh, was far from perfect, it did incorporate a lot of cutting-edge tech that the Allies, who soon became less than Allies after the Second World War, decided they would capitalise on. Right, right, because the Soviets weren't really known for their submarines, were they, in World War Two? No, I mean, there was, there's a long history of creating submarines in Russia, just as there, there was in America, in Britain, and various other nations. But in terms of the way in which the Russian Navy, the Red Navy, was used in the Second World War, it wasn't really uh, like the Americans, the Japanese, the Germans, or the British, in that it stuck fairly close to Russian shores and was seen as a supporting arm for the Red Army, for the Russian Army. And it did send out submarines in the Baltic and also uh, up north in the Arctic from Murmansk. Uh, but it, it is true to say they did not operate in quite the same adventurous way that the other nations during the Second World War did. So uh, as we move into the 1950s, one of the things I did want to underline is this book is packed full of great stories and and incidents, many of which I'd never heard of, some of which I'd heard a little bit about. But uh, Ian really does provide a lot of detail on these. And there were a couple of incidents in the 1950s, one of which is quite an echo to the uh, Kursk submarine accident, which I think was in the, was that the 1990s? Uh, the year 2000, the Russian Oscar-class submarine Kursk had a an incident whilst in the Barents Sea. It is thought that a weapon that used a very unstable propellant called high-test peroxide exploded, and that basically destroyed the submarine, sent it to the bottom of the sea with a few of her crew trapped for a while, but they eventually expired. So it's a very famous incident from August 2000. And I think what you're referring to is HMS Sidon, which was in port at uh, Portland. And what happened there was the British were experimenting with high-test peroxide-propelled torpedoes. And as one of those weapons was being slid into a tube, it um, accidentally went past what's called the top stop and the uh, engine was started while it was in the tube and the fuel ignited. This created an explosion that killed people in the forward areas of the submarine and in harbour, she basically came to grief. And they were lucky uh, in some ways in that people that were not in that forward part of the submarine were able to jump overboard and escape this inferno of flames and fumes uh, but uh, yeah it was very similar in some ways to the the incident with the Kursk in that a weapon with an unstable propellant uh, exploded so there was a precursor there and I think the western navies realized that HTP propelling torpedoes or in fact submarines was a very unwise idea and so they gave up that proposal uh, but the Russians persisted with it because they wanted high speed for, for their weapons. Yeah, surprising they were still using that that dangerous propellant even um, at, at that time. There were other contributory factors, um, but 
that was a key part of it with the curse. Yeah, yeah. And the the following year, there's there's an incident at uh, Gosport with a with a Soviet cruiser and a certain Commander Crab. Can you just uh, d- describe that to to our listeners? What happened on that occasion was. Commander Crabbe, who was a very famous uh, Second World War frogman who'd been up to all sorts of amazing exploits in waters off Gibraltar against uh, the Italians who were trying to infiltrate that harbour and sink Allied ships, post-war was engaged in exploits that included going underneath uh, Russian cruisers. And he'd actually done it before. And the idea was that he'd go underneath and find out what new tech was underneath the waterline. So when this Russian cruiser came to Portsmouth carrying Khrushchev, he was sent on a kind of a rogue mission to see what he could find and somehow uh, disappeared, ended up uh, dead and uh, was found in Chichester Harbour with no head and no hands. And nobody really knows what happened to him, but the speculation is that he was caught by the Russians carrying out this inspection in Portsmouth Harbour and then was, was killed. And it was a very, very um, embarrassing incident, of course, and had quite big ramifications for intelligence gathering operations by the Royal Navy in the Arctic uh, off the Kola Peninsula, where the main Russian fleet was based, because those were postponed due to the uh, the furore that was created by Crab's little exploit. But the the following year, uh, Harold Macmillan succeeds Anthony Eden as uh, as Prime Minister and Macmillan authorised deployments into the Barents Sea, which is the Soviet submarine's real home territory, isn't it? Yeah, he was told by some of the naval experts that if he didn't resume these pretty risky missions with what were, in essence, modernised Royal Navy submarines that were using some of the technology from the German Type 21 U-boats, such as high-speed batteries and also a thing called a snorkel, which enables a boat to recharge the batteries, expel fumes, draw in air while submerged. Those sort of tweaks, plus intelligence-gathering communications equipment put into these old submarines uh, that made them into a thing called a Super T, a Super T boat. If uh, Macmillan was told, if you don't send Super T boats back up into the Barents to do intelligence-gathering, the Americans basically will take a dim view of the UK and it's a major element of the special relationship is to send these specialist submarines that have been converted for this dedicated intelligence gathering mission. So he resumed them and uh, they were amazing feats of endurance and very, very risky. Yeah, yeah, that, that really does come across in the book. Can you describe some of those early missions? Yeah, the... Um, we're talking about the, the late 50s and into the early 60s, and um, one boat that I feature is uh, HMS Taciturn, which was sent up there under the sea for quite a long time. I mean, we're talking about weeks and weeks without actually seeing the outside world. And their main job was to loiter off the coast of the Soviet Union and stay hidden and dodge uh, any Russian helicopters or other surface ships or even other submarines, and basically spy on anything the Russians were up to on their firing ranges or pick up the, uh, the new radar signals or the even the propeller characteristics of Russian vessels so that they could build up 
an intelligence picture of what new weapons the Russians are developing and also what tech they might have. And uh, they were highly secret. And the submariners that were engaged in them were told not to tell their families anything about them. And before they left, they weren't allowed to phone home. They had to leave a letter in which they mustn't mention the mission. And that would be posted after they'd gone. And then some weeks later, they would sort of reappear and nobody would know where they'd been. But they, they could risk all sorts of retaliation by the Russians if caught, such as depth charging in, in one instance with a submarine called Turpin, actually having a torpedo fired and uh, being trapped by a mine in a minefield and suffering damage actually during the depth charging. So they were they were risky risky things, and and the the conditions that the submariners endured were. We've seen the film Das Boot. I mean, it was like Das Boot. It was pretty horrible uh, conditions with shortage of water, not being able to wash, sometimes lacking air. I mean, everything you think of in a traditional kind of U-boat film like Das Boot, these British submariners had to endure for weeks at a time uh, in secret in the late fifties and early sixties. Yes, you you tell quite a, a graphic tale of of Turpin and the uh, the depth charges and 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 the minefield. I mean, risky sounds like an understatement. This sounds like really dangerous missions. And I was struck by the commander of Taciturn. I think he tells his crew this is going to be like a wartime patrol. Yeah, I mean, the thing about these these guys that were submarine captains at that time in the Royal Navy was they had actually served in the Second World War. So they were that bit older than their uh, ratings and their junior officers. So they they knew the risks that they were going to face. So the conditions that they went into were, if they'd been submarines, were very familiar to them. And, and also these submarines carried what was really a warload of torpedoes. So they were fully ready to defend themselves if they were cornered. And they hoped that they wouldn't. So you're right. Um, Lieutenant Commander O'Connor uh, basically said, this is what we're going to do. And you better get yourselves in the right mindset because this is going to be a mission in which we're going to spend up to seven weeks away and we'll be dived most of the time. And we will face probably retaliation if, if we're caught. And they actually had on board a Russian-speaking officer that worked with the technicians, the intelligence gathering technicians, who were also put on board the submarine to listen in on Soviet wireless transmissions to try and pick up what was going on. So it was real secret uh, stuff that they were up to. Incredible, incredible. And among the many stories that I wasn't aware of was the Royal Navy's participation in, in the Cuba quarantine during the Cuba Missile Crisis of 1960. Can you just give me a bit of detail on that? The... Uh, thing that people don't know or they forget about the Cuban crisis is that obviously the main line of confrontation was was at sea and with the President Kennedy's quarantine of Cuba. But beyond that, further north in the Atlantic, there were actually Canadian surface warships. Even HMS Belfast was sent down potentially to get involved. But most of all, for, for my book, there was actually two Canadian-based British submarines deployed under the sea in the North Atlantic to try and find uh, Russian submarines going south to trail them and, if needed, get in a position to fire torpedoes. And also uh, there was at least one submarine uh, deployed from 
the UK with, again, a warload of torpedoes to go off and try and find out where the Russians were and what they were, what they were up to. And those people were fully aware that the, the crisis could change at any moment into an, an actual war. And in, in one submarine uh, based in Canada, HMS Astute, the, the crew was mixed, uh, Raw Navy and Canadian, because the Canadians didn't operate submarines at that time. So the Raw Navy kind of ran their submarine squadron, the sixth submarine squadron, and the Canadians got their submarine experience before they had their own submarines later in the 60s. They were serving in the British ones. And when they were at sea, there was a slight problem in that although Britain was firmly up for the idea of standing shoulder to shoulder with the Americans in a war, if that happened during the crisis, the Canadian government was, wasn't so sure it wanted to go to war. It was fine with Cold War missions and NATO, but it wasn't sure that it wanted to actually go to war. So these Canadians in the British submarine were told by their their naval boss, uh, the Canadian naval boss, that should it come to war, they would not be able to get them off the submarine because, you know, to service a submarine to get rid of the Canadians would potentially expose it to being sunk. So they would stay with this British submarine, HMS Astute, and they should cut off the uh, Canada flash from their uniforms. So if they were, if their bodies were found, if they were killed and the bodies were recovered, uh, that it would not be known that Canadians had been in the British submarine during the war. And, uh, although, of course, if things had gone badly during the Cuban Missile Crisis, it, it probably would have been the least of our problems because it could have gone to a nuclear exchange. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. That's that. That's, that's really interesting. That there were also some missions under under the polar ice, which are almost reminiscent of uh, the Alastair MacLean book, Ice Station Zebra, and the film. Yeah, yeah, I know what you're on about. They're, they're um, in fact, more dangerous than uh, Ice Station Zebra because, of course, uh, that submarine is a nuclear-powered submarine. But during the early 60s, the British had not yet gone down the nuclear-powered submarine path, so they still used these uh, upgraded World War II boats to go under the ice. And the reason they did that in the Gulf of St. Lawrence in particular was to go in there for the first-generation Soviet nuclear missile submarines, which it was reckoned would go under the ice there and try and hide and slip by defences and uh, wait for the order to fire their nuclear missiles because their range, uh, the early Soviet uh, nuclear missile submarines, the the range of their weapons was two or 300 miles. So they had to get close to the United States and they would go under the ice in the Gulf of St. Lawrence. So the British were tasked at a time when the uh, Americans and Soviets were moving into nuclear power with sending diesel submarines under the ice. And that was very, very tricky because if you if you run out of air, you run out of battery charge when you're submerged under ice, then you cannot potentially get up to, to surface through a polynia, which is a, a sort of a hole in the ice, but probably covered in thin slushy ice, and then surface, open the hatch and pull in uh, fresh air and, and get rid of fumes while you charge your battery. So all the time, the Royal Navy uh, submarines that went in under the ice were dicing with death because if they couldn't, in an emergency, get up there and through the ice, then everybody would die. And uh, so it was actually a very, very, very dangerous thing to do. But they did it, and it actually persuaded the Royal Navy that actually it probably ought to get into nuclear power. 
<laughs> yeah, and and this is echoed throughout the book. The incredible bravery of the sailors who 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 were on these boats, particularly with the early technology they they were using, but also later on in the Cold War with some of the incidents that you describe in in the book as well, which which we'll come on to. That one of the many gems that I I found in the book Thanks was a uh, well, no, it, it it's packed full of great great stories as as i said but there's a lieutenant commander hale who has an encounter with a harbor pilot in hamburg can you just recount that story commander hale tim hale was um captain of uh, hms tiptoe which was one of these super t rebuilt submarines that was still in service in the late 60s and this was march 1966 when um like many sailors, uh, the idea of, of a visit to Hamburg uh, when it was the swinging 60s for a run ashore as a break from exercises was very enticing. So the thing was they had to get past Cuxhaven, up the River Elbe, and then come in alongside uh, Hamburg, which was by no means easy. And by the time Tito arrived, uh, she was uh, told that she'd have to wait at anchor in the river, which had quite a strong current, and wait for the morning to come in. So they did that. And uh, Tiptoe, unfortunately, started to drag her anchor. So there was a bit of an emergency with the submarine being swept swept down the river. So they got that under control and throughout the night managed to hold on. And then in the morning, uh, the following day, they went in to go into harbour. And that proved a little bit challenging. And uh, coming into the berth was not easy in, in the current. And so... A harbour pilot had been put aboard and he was there on the bridge of Tiptoe watching Tim cope with this very tricky process of bringing the submarine in uh, with a little smile on his face and uh, watching as uh, Tim basically gave some rather strident orders to people to sort themselves out. And then afterwards, Tim said, do you want to come down and have a a scotch with me? And uh, thanks for your help, because obviously he'd been advising him. And so Tim says, why were you smiling when we couldn't come in the first time? And and this, this harbour pilot said, well, I haven't heard bad language like that since World War II. And it was then that Tim discovered that this guy was um, was a former U-boat captain who'd been through the same process and had done quite, quite a bit of swearing when he couldn't get the boat in during the Second World War. So the two uh, submarine captains had a, had a whiskey and Tail saluted him and uh, he saluted uh, Tim. And that was how the sort of... 20 years on, that was how the two sides kind of, you could say, buried the hatchet. And uh, it's just a great little story because uh, Tim's dad served in the Second World War, so he was the son of um, a veteran of that war. So, there were, you know, in the Cold War, there was no uh, no problem with the, the, anybody from that era, especially if they were a submarine captain who'd survived at sea. So they got on, on as friends and had a whiskey. It is a great story, and I've I've got in my mind's eye this grizzled uh, Hubert captain uh, with a battered hat on the on the bridge of the submarine. You know, it, it's just got that image, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, uh, problems with uh, bringing submarines into tricky uh, harbors, etc., are going to be the same no matter which navy you're in. So I suppose that's why it made him laugh. Um, so it was, you know, it's a nice little story, or as they say in the navy, a good little dit. That's great. Now, one of the the things that did surprise me was how close the the Soviets were getting to NATO exercises and and bases. And I think there were a, a couple of incidents in nineteen sixty six and sixty seven. 
particularly. Yeah, I mean, I think um, across the course of the Cold War, things happened that would surprise many people where submarines, whether it was a British submarine up in the north going in off the Kola Peninsula or um, with Russian uh, submarines or surface vessels, in fact, spy ships, coming in very close to uh, the UK shores. And uh, the incident you're on about, the first one in 1966 was a Romeo-class diesel that was trying to get in as close as possible, and it's reckoned went within UK territorial waters, to basically snoop on what the Americans were doing with their ballistic missile submarines going in and out of the Holy Loch uh, submarine base, the Polaris boats, but also trying to find what the Royal Navy's first nuclear-powered submarine, HMS Dreadnought, was up to, and whether or not she was armed with a new kind of nuclear missile and find out what kind of sound she made uh, to try and identify if there was a future war. So this Romeo-class diesel boat comes in and uh, has a snoop round and basically gets caught, is heard on SOSUS, and also then British warships, surface warships, and Shackleton Maritime Patrol aircraft are vectored in on this unfortunate Romeo, chase chase the submarine out of out from the Clyde into the open sea, and then pursue her and make her surface very humiliating and uh, escort her well well out of UK waters. So there's things like that happened. Uh, more than once. And then I think the other one you're on about is 1967 when it was Kosygin was visiting the UK to talk with Harold Wilson about uh, peace efforts in Vietnam. And uh, at the same time as he was touching down to have these talks of peace, um, there was a whiskey-class uh, Russian submarine that left the Baltic to come and spy on whatever the British were doing as an exercise or who knows, try and just keep tabs on what was happening ashore during the visit and uh, was was detected and three British frigates, a couple of diesel submarines and Dreadnought, uh, broke off from their excise and were ordered to close the submarine for the purpose of hunting. And so as they're pursuing this this uh, whiskey-class submarine, uh, the British forces told by uh, Dennis Healy, uh, who I think was the defence minister at the time, to maybe be a bit careful because they wouldn't want an incident to happen um, when the, the Russian prime minister is also ashore and uh, it could cause a bit of a ruckus. So they were told to back off. But it's the kind of thing that was, um, I wouldn't say totally routine, but it went on frequently where navies that were in reality, certainly if they were submarines, were, were well armed and ready to go, but had to pull their punches and be careful because any any mistake at sea could lead to either a collision or an exchange of fire or something like that. So it did go on out there where we didn't know it was going on as well. Yeah, yeah, indeed, indeed. And what options would have been considered in order to force a Soviet submarine to surface in those circumstances? Yeah, I mean, with a diesel-electric submarine like a Whiskey or a Romeo, the main weapon, I would say, is to keep the boat down for hours and hours, maybe days, until the submarine runs out of air and is forced to surface to get some air and recharge the batteries. And at that point, there's a victory notched up for whichever side has done the forcing. So occasionally you might see, for example, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, low-powered depth charges were used to force submarines up off Cuba. And also the underwater telephone was used by the American surface warships off Cuba to 
advise the Russian submarines to surface. So you've got those options. And then the Russians up in the north, uh, they would they would use depth charges, maybe low low power, maybe not. One of the boats up there, which uh, is in the book, in the book, was quite badly damaged. So they might even fire a torpedo wide to scare the submarine away. Uh, and again, you know, with, with a diesel electric submarine, if it was British in the north, it could be forced to stay down and then surface. So I think there was never an intention on either side to go all out and just kill whatever the intruding submarine was, because a lot of the time they were in international waters anyway. It just so happened they were spying on an exercise. And if they could keep them at arm's length and just keep an eye on them, they would. So I don't, I don't think anybody involved in what is quite a risky game would want to go too far. I think everybody uh, was well aware of that because, of course, the nuclear weapons dimension and the nuclear-powered submarine dimension as time went on was always there. So you had to be very, very careful. Yeah. Yeah, it's incredible when you you talk about, you know, the Soviets possibly firing a, a torpedo wide. I mean, you have to be really sure where the other submarine is to do something like that. Yeah, I mean, if if you've got um, a fix, you know, you know what the bearing is of the the other submarine. That yeah, a torpedo fired down another bearing, uh, which makes a noise, which the opponent hears on the uh, passive sonar, and that kind of warns them that they are actually, you know, they're getting too too close, or they're intruding in an area where they shouldn't be. So it probably happened more often than you think. And the Russians had a, fa- a famous. Um, tactic and i don't want to preempt your hunt for an october thing maybe we could talk about it then but they had of course the crazy ivan which really was a real tactic yeah okay so as we move into the 1960s the the royal navy as you said decided that they needed to go uh nuclear with their submarines and there's two types introduced the ssn and the ssbn and we will be testing listeners on this later um but ian if you can tell us their different roles and what the difference was from the uh, diesel boats. The SSN is a nuclear powered. Did you know that your account with Amazon can help me get new guests on the show? Just search for Cold War Conversations on Amazon and leave a review for the podcast. Thank you. Fleet submarine in Royal Navy parlance in the sort of 60s and 70s, also known as a hunter killer by the Americans, uh, or an attack boat. So basically, uh, its job is to attack other submarines or surface warships with conventional weaponry. And nowadays, such a boat would also have cruise missiles with conventional warheads. The SSBN is a ballistic missile submarine that carries 12, 16 on average, uh, or did 16 on average during the Cold War, 16 missiles and that could be for britain polaris submarine for the americans uh it would be the george washington class later the ohio class and for the the russians initially their first proper ssbn was the yankee class so the ssbns have a whole section in them where they have uh, ballistic missiles which rely on satellites for targeting and are fired up into outer space and then plunge onto the target causing world-ending destruction whereas your SSN is there for hunting and killing other submarine surface vessels and is a tactical weapon strategic effect but basically for non-nuclear warfare and to possibly if, if things turn nasty during the cold war to 
trail and destroy uh, enemy SSBN. So it's a kind of it's two distinct roles, and the SSBN its primary task is to deploy and then stay hidden, stay quiet, stay out of the way. It's at a, at a walking pace, literally. Uh, disappear for several weeks, stay hidden under the sea, hope not to be detected, and just wait for that doomsday order, which obviously everybody hopes will never come, and stay out of the way. So it's not hunting for anybody, it's not looking for anybody, and it stays out of the way of, of SSNs if it hears them, and it, and it probably would hear them, uh, and basically hopes not to be found. Whereas your SSNs out there hunting and sniffing around, trying to find other submarines and carrying out surveillance and and espionage missions. That's the, a perfect explanation. Thank you very much for that. Now, as you sort of alluded to there, some of the SSNs were, I think they were called special fit boats. Can you just describe what, what they were intended to do, what their role was? Yeah, special fit, fit boats. Special fit boats were a few nuclear pad submarines in the Royal Navy that were given... Um, intelligence gathering equipment and also extra people, uh, communications technicians and others to to assist them in carrying out the espionage mission up in the Barents Sea or sniffing around the edges of the White Sea during the Cold War. Uh, or uh, And so that included uh, acoustic intelligence equipment, communications, signals intelligence and electronic intelligence equipment, uh, all packed into the submarine along with these extra people that would run it and assist with it. And so they there was probably only, what, three, in, certainly in the early days, two or three at a time, uh, were, were available for that mission. And they would be tasked with the American submarines that were also their version of special fit with going up into the Barents. And then they would kind of run a relay where the British would go in and spy on weapons tests and sniff around and look at things and try and record things or photograph things or shoot video in the in the later part. And uh, then the Americans would come in and the British would come out. So the story of HMS Warspite um, is one such special fit submarine which features a fair bit in the book. So that, that's one I look at. But there were others. There was HMS Courageous and, of course, other other boats as well. So that's a special fit boat. It does that kind of mission. Right, right. So they're getting really close in to the Soviet forces to, to pick up this data. Yeah. yeah. I think the thing about the thing about a nuclear pad submarine is that you can hang a lot of uh, high-power equipment on, uh, which is really why uh, the Royal Navy and the other navies went nuclear, was to basically, because you want to hide your submarine, particularly in the era of satellites where, you know, people can look down and find them or you just want to stay hidden under the sea all the time or you need nuclear power that doesn't need air to keep going, that can generate air for the crew and doesn't need to suck in air to recharge a battery and get rid of fumes. That's nuclear power's um, obvious uh, attraction. And you can go on under the, the ice or you can go off around the world um, without, without having to surface at all. But it also means that with nuclear power, you can operate high-tech, intelligence gathering equipment, sensors, and also weaponry. And it gives you all the power you need to do that. So that that is the thing about a nuclear-powered submarine. And the special fit boats were the successors in the Royal Navy to the adapted 
diesel boats called the uh, Super Ts, but they were of a different order, you know, completely to any diesel boat. Right. Right. And Warspite, who you, you mentioned just a moment ago, in 1968, it has an incident which is officially described as some trouble with some icebergs. <laughs> it's a standard thing, yeah, icebergs, yeah. Uh, can you uh, just take us through what happened there? Yeah, that's one of these icebergs that sort of is black and moves through the water and has a red star on it. But to this day, the uh, that incident is still officially described as a collision with an iceberg and that caused uh, quite a fair amount of damage and was very tricky. But the thing about Wolfspite and her story in the book is that I was able to present for the first time the inside view of that from Tim Hale, who was the XO of the submarine at the time, second in command, and also one or two other people who I picked up their accounts and a guy called John Colling, who was in charge of the sonar, uh, the sound room, the sonar room at the time. So I was able to put together the first inside story of this quite famous iceberg collision, which, of course, everybody really that, that has any insight into it knows was a Russian submarine that they unfortunately had a coming together with in the Barents Sea. And in this case, it was an Echo 2 nuclear pad submarine armed with missiles, not a ballistic missile submarine, but a, a missile firing submarine that could fire nuclear tip weapons and was basically sailing through the, the Barents Sea and Warspite was trailing her and trying to pick up and record the sound signature of the boat and gather any intelligence possible. And it was actually Warspite's first trail. And um, what happened was the, the Echo 2 has two screws and they shut one of them down. And this meant that Warspite suspected uh, initially that the submarine was turning. But in fact, she just shut, I think, uh, if memory serves me correct, her starboard screw. Um, and and was still going the same way. So as Warspite came around thinking she was about to turn to follow this submarine, she was underneath her and she came in in contact with her and was rolled uh, right over and uh, quite to quite a serious degree. And one one guy uh, in the book describes how he was in in his uh, his mess aboard and ended up kind of walking on the ceiling of the mess as the you know to keep himself. Uh, steady as the boat rolled over and they knew pretty quickly that something serious had gone wrong they could hear the the sound the fortunate thing was that in the maneuvering room which is the compartment in the back end that uh, contains the controls to the nuclear reactor the engineer officer a guy called frank turvey instantly knew what had happened and he decided that he would counteract this automatic safety measure designed to prevent a nuclear accident uh, which might seem a bit odd, but in that extreme situation, he decided that he had to make sure that the reactor was not shut down when the boat rolled because that, it was a kind of automatic shutoff uh, when Warspite rolled over, having hit the Echo 2. So Turvey makes sure that the reactor power isn't lost, which means that when uh, Tim Hale and uh, also the the boss, uh, Commander Har- Harvey, in, in the control room, decide that what they've got to do is get the submarine on the surface. They have the power to do that, and they can maintain all power, and the submarine didn't go crashing to the floor of the, the Barents Sea. So they retained control of the submarine, 
We've got the submarine on the surface after the collision with the Echo 2. And then there was this kind of very tense moment where the damaged Warspite and the slightly damaged Echo 2 were both on the surface looking at each other, inspecting each other through through periscopes and wondering what was next. And uh, it turned out in that in that instance uh, that they just kind of looked at each other and then each one, the Echo 2, moved off. And then Warspite was faced with assessing the um, the damage that had been suffered during the collision. So what they had to do was go out and look at the, the fin, the, the tower bit, and they, they found that that was quite badly stoved in, so they had to make sure everything was watertight, and um, then limp back to um, get back to, to Scotland, basically. And so it was a very, very tricky uh, moment, but thankfully there were cool heads, and they both sort of parted company, and the Echo 2 went back to Murmansk or wherever, and um, they headed back to Scotland. But they, they did it dived, they got down once they checked that the, the boat was watertight and took uh, Warspite away and out of the area and then uh, back home. So it was a, a very tricky moment. It's all in the book, and uh, it was a key moment for me was to uh, uh, meet people that had been there because I thought, well, this is a really exciting story that I've got to get in there. Absolutely, absolutely. And there is plenty of drama in in the book. Would the Soviet submarine been able to identify Warspite as a British submarine then? Um, you know, I'm not going to say 100% that she would have. She would have obviously known that this was uh, a NATO boat. They might have done. It depends. But she was an early Valiant-class submarine, so they might have known the shape and they would have, who knows, they might have taken a photograph. I don't know. I mean, probably they would know, American or British. So they they would have known. They wouldn't have thought it was one of their own. So whoever the captain was of the Echo 2 was a pretty cool customer as well, I would say. Yeah, a Marco Ramius, huh? A Marco Ramius, maybe not. Maybe he's not from the Baltic States, but anyway, whoever he was, we can be grateful that he didn't lose his nerve, as it were, or just get very angry. Yeah, yeah. Same goes for, you know, Commander Harvey, who was uh, the boss of uh, HMS Warspites. I mean, he was... uh, commendably cool and everybody on board in fact you know the people that that saved the boat basically tim made sure that she surfaced immediately because he was the exo he took action and and then he the um the maneuvering room um that guy also made sure that uh, they they kept power so it was very lucky very lucky but of course it was an iceberg so you know exactly really happened yeah exactly probably <laughs> lost their no claims bonus yeah, after that yeah. one but yeah, tricky icebergs yeah just going back to the ssbns can you just give us a little bit more detail about how how they operated yeah the structure of the book is to take the reader through the cold war from the late 40s to the end of the cold war so i have four main uh, submarine captains a few other guys including ratings and mentions for junior officers as, as well. But Rob Forsyth was one of the key players, as well as Tim Hale. And then we've got uh, another submarine legend called um, Doug Littlejohns, and we have Dan Conley as well. So those four guys are the main players, so they kind of take you through the whole story. But Rob, Rob Forsyth, served as the XO of a Polaris missile submarine. Uh, in the early 70s and he along with his captain at the time they both um, knew 
where the submarine was, but the majority of people uh, in in the boat, other than them, wouldn't know at the time because it just really wasn't wasn't their their job to know because they had to focus on just running the boat and, and getting on with their lives under the sea for several weeks. So Rob gives a good account of how those uh, submarines worked and uh, and if you want and there is a ratings version of it. Um, of the story of what it felt like. And that's from a guy called Michael Pitt-Keithley, which is very interesting to read. But the in, in general, they would go out from Faz Lane. And then, as I mentioned before, they would spend most of their time just trying to lead a very quiet life and stay out of the way. And they would run a routine and they would know uh, due to the lighting system when it was a certain time of the day or what meal they were having. And uh, they would pursue all sorts of activities to keep themselves interested, like making models or studying for degrees or other qualifications. But on the whole, the people that knew what was going on and would have to keep tabs on things was the XO and the captain. One of the stories that Rob tells is that um, they would occasionally come up and poke, poke the, uh, the aerial up and get the World Service. And if they could hear the BBC World Service was on and everything was normal, they would know that there hadn't been some kind of nuclear Armageddon, that everything was correct. So if there was ever a moment of doubt... They would tune in to whatever the radio uh, broadcast was. And as long as they found the BBC World Service or Radio 4 or something, then they knew that all was well. So that was one of the things they used to do. Right. Right. And the the, the one area, well, there's many areas that fascinate me, but we'd be here all day. But yeah. the, the, the one that interests me is the the letter that the UK Prime Minister writes to every commander of Britain's nuclear deterrent and th- and that's known as the letter of last resort yeah yeah it still still exists to this day and every uh, prime minister when they assume office is taken I presume they're taken into a side room sat down and uh, at number 10 and told to write this letter of last resort and that's then distributed in fact there's four of them because there's four uh, ballistic missile submarines and each submarine gets this letter that is stuck in a safe so the reason they do that is that if the prime minister is wiped out uh, with the rest of uh, the leadership the political leadership this letter which says what his or her desire would be in a nuclear uh, confrontation where missiles may or may not need to be fired is written down on this letter and kept in this safe and it conveys the prime minister's wishes and then if there's no command authority coming down from the politicians, it, it's opened and read by the captain of the submarine and um, and the XO. But, of course, nobody's ever seen that letter in all the time since the first Polaris submarine patrols by the Royal Navy in the late 60s, until today when the letter of last resort is currently in the hand of Boris Johnson uh, in terms of writing his handwriting. That that letter from Boris Johnson and before him, Theresa May, is in the safe of the Vanguard-class missile submarines that we have at sea at the moment. But in, in the Cold War, uh, it was obviously people like uh, Jim Callaghan, obviously Margaret Thatcher, of course Tony Blair later on, and all those people. So it's kept in the safe. And at that particular moment where nobody knows what to do, they open it up and they read it. And Rob in uh, Hunter Killers, Rob Forsyth, speculates that there are alternatives written down, possibly, you know, that that, um, maybe the Prime Minister has written, hit back with your missiles because we've been nuked, or don't hit back, or there might be some other instruction. But neither Rob, who served as the XO 
of a of a Polaris submarine or anybody else really knows what's in those letters. So let's hope that we never have to have them because we won't know either. <laughs> no, know. no, we won't. They're never opened. That's all I've got to say. Yeah, I would like to write it. Would you like to write that? I wouldn't. No, no. I mean, but that that must be the one of the biggest impacts when you become prime minister of the responsibility that you that you have. Yeah, I would say I would probably think it's incredibly sobering to you're there and you're sort of being slapped on the back or you know your hand, hands being shaken by all these people and you've ascended to become prime minister and then somebody says excuse me could you just come into this side room please you've got to write this letter and decide whether or not you want us if we've been nuked do you want us to nuke them or do you just want us to say i will not nuke back you know i won't fire the missiles back that must be incredibly you know foreboding the idea that you've actually got to write down what to do is just beyond beyond anything i think we'd like to do isn't it yeah okay so um, if if the worst happens and they have to launch, what what is the process for the authentication and, and launch of the missiles? If an order to fire has been issued, there's a thing called a national fire control message transmitted to what is the patrolling SSBN because there's one. The whole system is meant to guarantee, and this is why you have four uh, that there'll be one at sea all the time throughout the year. And you know, from 1968 until today. In terms of the Royal Navy, there's always been this what they call the continuous at sea deterrent. So there'll always be a boat. Submarines are called boats, no matter how big they are. There's a submarine out there carrying nuclear missiles. So what you get is you get the National Fire Control message transmitted to the SSBM. The coordinates for whatever the targets are uh, are loaded or into the into the missiles, and then the NCM contains two sets of authentication codes and you've got one for the co one for the xo and they have to match what's held aboard the submarine and then to make sure that no one person can do it there's a further safeguard uh, and the codes are kept the codes that they have aboard the submarine are kept in two separate safes and the respective combinations are only known to the xo and the co separately and then after that uh, according to what I've been told, and this is in the book, so I'll, I'll probably refer closely to that, you get s- step one, this is the most important step, which is the authentication of the firing signal by the XO and CO. So that brings the two separate codes together to achieve what I was told is called unique authentication. And then permission to fire is given by turning the captain's key, which is found in one of these safes in the control room panel. And then completion of the firing circuit is done by the weapons engineer officer, who was also at the time the Polaris systems officer, via a pistol grip and trigger attached to a wire, which is connected to a control panel and a missile. So those three stages are next after they realise they've got to launch. Um, And then there's a whole system that takes over and goes through a load of other actions. And then the moment of firing comes when the submarine rises to launch depth. And then once they've the pressure inside the tubes has been equalised with the pressure outside. The lids open and the missile or missiles are rejected and then they are then launched. They then launch themselves off into the sky and go away towards their target. So the missile breaks the surface. The first stage ignition kicks in. The rocket motors fire and it goes away into the sky. Um, and and that's it. But I have to say, you know, that process... And other aspects of it 
are there to make sure you cannot just accidentally launch a nuclear missile. And when I visited HMS Vengeance, which is a modern uh, Trident missile submarine in Faz Lane, you know, I walked down between the, the, the missile uh, tubes and then we, we went into the, the office where they would launch the missiles from. I was explained to me that the, the, the there's a whole process to make sure that the, the missiles aren't armed uh, ready to go all the time and that there's 60 steps uh, before they can actually fire them. So there's all sorts of uh, fail-safes there. But it's um, it's very complicated, as you can hear, and I hope I haven't I've made it reasonably simple to understand. But in the book, it might be easy to understand if yeah. you read it. Yeah, yeah, and I, there's a video I found of YouTube which I think shows the procedure on a Polaris boat, which I will add to the show notes for this episode. Yeah, um, and that, that's idea. worth watching because that does show that this pistol grip as well, and is a real and, one. Yeah, it, it's yeah. bizarre, isn't it? The <laughs> When um, Rob was talking to me about lots of different issues and um, connected to the deterrent at the time during the Cold War, he mentioned that one of the things they also have is in case somebody loses their mind at some stage or lost their mind at some stage during a Cold War patrol, they they had a baseball bat, which they would use to um, basically, if somebody goes mad and starts to interfere with the launch uh, equipment, then they can take them out with a baseball bat because you wouldn't want to use a gun in there. So that's the irony of it. You've got a pistol grip attached to a wire if that Armageddon day ever comes. But actually, if somebody goes a bit mad, then they've got, they did have um, in Repulse uh, a baseball bat to uh, subdue them. So it's, it's, uh, they've got to think of everything, I think. Yeah. So, yeah. Know, very, contingency. very sobering. Yeah, it is very sobering. And yeah. uh, Rob, Rob and the others were, were under no, no uh, illusions. Uh, about the heavy weight of responsibility that they had, um, and you know, opinions change. I know he he's got his doubts these days whether we should still have Trident, and he's quite clear about that. He's not sure that it's relevant today, but he does think that in the Cold War there was a purpose for it, and it was to try and institute you know mutually assured destruction, mad, to ensure that we didn't have a nuclear war. And that's the weird thing about nuclear weapons is that they're actually political weapons uh, as doug littlejohns explained to me uh, about um massive russian nuclear submarines with missiles and big american mu- nuclear missile submarines they're, they're not weapons of war to be used they're actually political weapons to stop war uh, but they can only be effective if if you go about it me- meaning to use them and it's a kind of paradox that sort of does your head in that we have these um immensely powerful submarines with these terrible weapons on board uh, which could end humanity and the planet but in fact they're there to try and stop anybody doing that whether or not that equation still works is a, is a different matter but certainly during the cold war it seemed to be a system that although it had its moments um worked and we didn't have that armageddon thank goodness yeah yeah no there is an argument that uh you know nuclear weapons were the biggest factor in maintaining the peace during the cold war yeah um i mean there were mili- tens of millions of people died in the second world war and without some kind of deterrent on each side during that period to um to make people think it could well have been that we would have seen a third world war but of course at the same time i mean i'm a child of the cold war 
we were all living on the edge of a precipice, you know, of uh, destruction, and we all we all felt that as well. Mm. So it was a weird kind of uh, feeling to be a child of the Cold War, to think that you lived with that ever-present uh, threat, and it's it's a threat that hasn't actually got away. But I don't think we think of it the same way. But fortunately, the people that were at the top uh, realised that, and you know, the Cuban Missile Crisis is an example of that. And when it came to that moment where one side or the other had to blink, or there was one person in the system um, that could stop nuclear war from happening, then it happened. And we were very, very lucky, I think. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, very sobering thought. It is, it is. There's a, another iceberg incident in 1981. What happens there? Yeah, that would be an iceberg um, that was really, in reality, a Delta Three ballistic missile boat and this was being trailed by HMS Scepter which was a, um, a Swiss Shield class submarine and basically um, what happened was they came together and uh, Scepter sustained an enormous amount of damage but did not obviously sink because she went on to serve for a number of years but it was another tricky moment and they were lucky that there was nothing more serious but there were questions asked in the House of Commons a few years later. But she had to go into a um, dry dock at Denport, and uh, Doug Littlejohns, one of the uh, main players in the book, was sent down to take a look at her and take command and then take her back out to sea and get everybody ready for operations again, which was quite a, uh, a challenge. So Scepter's forward casing had been torn away, which was quite a terrifying amount of damage and um, she was coming up from a deeper depth than the Delta 3 and then it's reckoned might have been turning across the Russian submarine stern. Hi this is Rhonda in Virginia and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the first-hand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week. To be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War, as a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. And was pushed down violently by the collision and one of the uh, five-bladed screws of uh, of the Delta III um, ballistic missile submarine chewed along HMS Scepter and then raked uh, the fin. So it's not something that's uh, totally secret that's been one or two people who were aboard have mentioned it and uh, can't say anybody that I spoke to gave me uh, every spit and cough, but I sort of was able to glean enough from my own inquiries and uh, various things to realise it wasn't wasn't an iceberg. It was a, a submarine, a Russian submarine. So it was that was in the early 80s. So things started to hot up again in the early 80s. The competition at sea uh, got more and more intense. So I think it was just a sign of how there were more and more submarines out there and they were in close proximity. So things like that can happen. Yeah. 
Yeah, because by the mid-1980s, the, the Soviet Navy's making some quite big leaps in terms of their technology, with uh, particularly with the Akula class. How were they achieving these uh, technological leaps? One way of achieving them, which I, I know you're well aware of, was, of course, the Walker, John Walker spy ring, which uh, managed to hoover up all sorts of technological um, intelligence and also um, operational intelligence and pass it on uh, to to the Russians. That was a major part of it. But the Russians also tried to acquire uh, technology in, in the open market, like, you know, how to uh, refine the screws or, you know, reduce the... Um, uh, the noise being given off, so they, they they basically hoovered up what they could in terms of secrets gained by spies inside the U.S. Navy or anywhere else, and also buy in, like say, milling equipment to to uh, refine uh, the the screws that propelled uh, the submarines. And the Akula was a representation uh, more so than the much vaunted Alpha. Uh, the Akula was a representation of how the Russians had buy. The, the early to mid '80s were catching up, were closing the gap in terms of technology um, and quality of submarine build as well. And uh, so that's a submarine that is still serving in the Russian Navy, just in a slightly updated version. Right, right. And so, did the Walker Spiring let them know that there was noise coming from there? Yeah, I mean, I'm not. I mean, he was he was spying for them for years and years and years. Yeah, um, and I suppose what he he would have passed on to them, uh, amongst many things, was just the knowledge that they had boats at certain times and places uh, and days picked up by uh, the Americans or SOSUS or something. Or mm. I'm not sure that he. I mean, you might know this better than me. I'm not sure that he knew he or you know uh, other members of his is spying new about Sosus or the deep, deep secrets. But certainly he would, I mean, it's like many things. If you give somebody a certain amount of information and they've got information coming from somewhere else, uh, open source stuff, then you can put it all together and the jigsaw sort of comes together. So I think he was able to tell them that they, they needed to up their game basically and would have, would have, would have passed on to them if he could get his hands on it. Anything that was was um, was useful to them in terms of improving their technology. Yeah, because I think it's reckoned that that spiring did a massive amount of damage yeah. in terms of yeah. Uh, yeah. providing yeah. the the Soviets with information. Definitely worth an episode. I think I'll have to find yeah. somebody yeah. who can, can you find somebody that's really. I've obviously got stuff on that in there. Yeah, because it was a, an essential part of the of the story. Has got to be you know how did people. Uh, who were traitors within the Royal Navy uh, set up the UK or in the anywhere else, you know, in the US Navy or any other part of um, Western society helped them by passing on secrets. And he was, without doubt, um, probably the worst breach. Yeah. And as, as you said, I mean, you said in the mid-1980s, it's getting more intense out there. And there's another dangerous incident with HMS Splendid, which collides with a typhoon, I think. Yeah, I mean, that, that was by the uh, late, I think the late 80s. So I think there was an awareness by then, uh, which is it's fascinating to read Hansard at the time. There was certainly an awareness by then that um, with 
the technological gap closing with the Russian uh, Navy's uh, submarine force expanding with the Royal Navy, you know, being at a reasonable level and the, the Americans expanding and these typhoon class ballistic missile submarines out there and the Americans and, and all the rest of it. The, the North Atlantic was getting to be a fairly uh, crowded place comparatively. So the Royal Navy submarines, suspended as a Swiss shore class submarine, was sent up there on these special missions whenever needed. And in her case, she was in the Barents Sea and using a thing called a towed array, which is a something I once called in a an article I wrote, an electronic sausage, which is like a, a sonar in a sort of sausage skin, a load of microphones that you put on the end of a very long, a very, very long cable, and you tow it a long way behind the submarine because you want to get it removed from your your own noise and it's a passive sonar so it listens and so then you can hear um what's going on out there but it, it essentially lengthens the submarine by quite a lot so it's it's a massive if you include the towed array on the end of its wire this is a submarine that's that's got a very long length the physical submarine and the towed array so they were using a towed array in the Barents sea and somehow the towed array got ripped off and wrapped around this Russian submarine. So the Russians, as I said in the book, that's a neat little intelligence gift to the, the Kremlin. So they could, st- the Russians now had something to study. Uh, but, you know, it's the sort of thing that happens. Uh, but it did at the time with, you know, Ray- Ronald Reagan building up the U.S. Navy and, and, the, and the, the arms race gathering pace again towards the end of the Cold War. It did arouse concerns in Parliament about the Royal Navy's submariners and submarines being pushed too far and everything getting a bit too intense. So it's quite um it's quite a famous incident, you know, in the late the late eighties and there were questions asked in Parliament about it. Yeah. 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 Now I think one of the things I like about the book is you do follow the careers of various characters in there as they move from from boat to boat. And one thing I hadn't realised is that the submarine commanders transferred to surface ships, so you've effectively got poacher-turned-gamekeeper. And there's a really nice piece in there about HMS London and a uh, Soviet exercise in the Baltic. The, the idea that uh, poacher-turned-gamekeeper is not new. I mean, during the Second World War, uh, there were plenty of ex-mariners in command of escort ships that would attack the U-boats, hunt them down. And it's a policy that goes you know, goes on to this day. So uh, in that case, HMS London was a what they call a batch uh, two Type 22 frigate built in the uh, mid-'80s. And her job, she was, in essence, packed full of intelligence-gathering equipment, uh, had missiles and torpedoes and a helicopter, but had this ability to gather intelligence um, and under the command of Doug Littlejohns, who had been a captain of a diesel boat and then HMS Scepter has served as second command of other submarines and worked in the MOD uh, coordinating submarine operations. He was basically given command of HMS London and he took her into the, um, the Baltic, which is a very confined area of sea comparatively. And so he rigged, rigged to HMS London as a merchant vessel and went in at night and um, then kind of appeared off the coast of what was then part of the Soviet Union, the Baltic States, and uh, monitored what the Russians were up to. But part of that whole episode 
was that they found a Russian diesel submarine and basically did what I mentioned earlier, kept the Russian diesel submarine down until um, until the sub was forced up, and then Doug flashed a cheeky message saying, how are you doing? You know, good morning. Uh, but also part of that, they liked to have fun with the Russians that were shadowing them. So they would um, they had a competition sort of to build uh, the biggest looking missile, fake missile that had ever been created on board um, um, HMS London. And the Russians thought they'd found this new terror missile. And Doug was in charge. And of course, he showed what could be done you know, with the submarine captain at the helm. Because the thing about that that incident where he found the, the Russian diesel and forced it to the surface in the Baltic was that, um, of course, as an ex-submarine captain, he had insight into what the submarine captain might do next. So he was able to keep on uh, that that diesel submarine's case and make life very uncomfortable. So, uh, yeah, that, that's how it works, really. If you know how a submariner's going to think and you're in charge of an anti-submarine or an intelligence-gathering ship, uh, like a Type 22 uh, frigate like that one, then, of course, you can try and anticipate what they're going to do. So that's that's the whole idea. I mean, he wasn't the only one that was uh, an ace um, submarine captain who then commanded a surface ship. Yeah, yeah. I think the the other bit that I I liked about this exercise is the burial at sea. Oh, yeah, yeah. Again, he was having a bit of fun with the Russians. That was basically, um, if you can imagine at the time, if you can imagine at the time, I mean, I went to the, the Soviet Union at the end of um, the Cold War. And in fact, in HMS London, I went to to, to the Barents. So I kind of got a taste of it. But Russia was starved of Western comforts. So Doug had by this stage become a, a friendly with uh, Tom Clancy. So he decided to have a bit of fun with the Russians. He decided that, to to tempt them with the the the, the luxuries of um, of the West, what he would do is they would have a fake a fake burial at sea. So they made a little um, little coffin up and they put inside this thing a bottle of whiskey, a Russian language copy of the Hunt for Red October, passed on by Tom Clancy to Doug, because uh, Doug, you know, met Clancy shortly after he wrote the Hunt for Red October, and um, also. You know, not very PC. A copy of a, uh, a shall we say, a girly magazine, and with a note from Doug saying, uh, "Having you got anything better to do?" And so they had this uh, Doug. I think it was Doug dressed up as the the uh, the padre, and they put this coffin in into the Baltic. And this Russian Matka class uh, boat was coming in to pick this up, picked it up, and so Doug had a laugh. You know, they had a laugh at the Russian expense because there was. Uh, they were the um, the decadent, corrupt West's uh, treasures and temptations in this coffin. So I bet they um, – is. I wonder whether or not they reported any of that and just kept the whiskey and the copy of the Hunt for Red October. But um, anyway, it was good fun for the London's crew. Yeah, it's a great it's a great story. And, yeah. and as as I've said before, there there are loads of these these great great stories in here. But we'd be we'd be here we'd be on here for hours if we covered all of them i'm i'm interested to know what you think of the hunt for red october film i think it's one of the better ones i think it's pretty good i mean it's um i first saw it um i don't know when you first saw it i saw it at the cinema when it was released the first time and um just trying to remember how we felt about it at the time but it was um yes yeah, i think it's a really good movie um i think uh one of the things that impressed me and I think impressed some mariners was how well he depicted a lot of 
um, the tactics and uh, obviously within a fictional scenario of a typhoon defecting. But they were very impressed. And I know that uh, Doug and other, uh, James Perrin was another uh, prominent um, British submarine captain at the time, were very impressed by uh, Clancy's insights into what they did. And one of the things I wanted to do with the book was to look at the fictional scenarios such as that trench run uh, that um, Marco Ramius does in his massive submarine to escape the uh, the torpedo, and also the, uh, the 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 spying on 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 other submarines or the sort of cat and mouse games of those, and put their real life counterparts in. So you know, I think a lot of the stuff that happened that Clancy portrayed because he he basically worked as um, I think an insurance salesman. Uh, if I mean, people should read the book. I've got it down there. It's a few years since I wrote it, but he definitely went round the homes of lots of American submariners and sort of hoovered up all the various stories and then sort of stitched it together into this narrative. So I thought the book's um, a good read, and I think the movie's pretty good. And who can who can ever forget the um, Sean Connery's portrayal of a Scottish uh, Soviet submarine captain? I mean, it's just brilliant. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it is one of my favourite films, and I, I think it, it manages to capture a lot of what life was like, like during during that period, as well as being a compelling and dramatic film. I think it, it, it managed to satisfy sort of as many people as possible with it. It's certainly where I first heard the term Crazy Ivan. Yeah, the Crazy Ivan, that, yeah, as said earlier, that is a real tactic. In a submarine, you have that area behind the submarine where, because of your own um, propulsion noise, you cannot your sonar cannot hear if there's somebody following you. So the Russians uh, came up with this idea of the crazy Ivan, which is to s- suddenly turn around and then charge down that bearing to see if anybody's following you. And it might be that if uh, you might hit them or collide with them, they were pretty aggressive using the crazy Ivan. So yeah, that that tactic, in fact, used a lot more aggressively. Is uh, is a real thing, uh, so I mean that just proves how uh, close he got with a lot of it. Yeah. I think I think Das Boot and Hunt for Red October are two movies I would put up there as um, being a good a good watch, and also I think pretty close to reality for the professionals who I think quite like them as well. Right, right. Well, that's a that's a good recommendation. I will provide links to uh, both of those in in the show notes. Now, as you alluded to just a moment ago, you were there for the very end of the Cold War on HMS London in the Barents Sea, and this was 1991. Can you tell us why you were there and what did you see? At the time, I was the um, defence reporter of the Evening Herald newspaper in in Plymouth, and we had based in Plymouth quite a lot of warships at that time, uh, about two dozen frigates, and London was one of those. And as the uh, the Cold War came to its end, John Major and Mikhail Gorbachev had this idea that for the first time in 50 years, a British warship should visit officially, officially, because they've been up there a few times unofficially, and that includes HMS London, should visit the Barents Sea and then uh, go down the Murmansk Inlet uh, t- uh, to... Murmansk itself, and that was a defence, what they were called today, a defence diplomacy mission. And then after that, go around to Archangel, and that was a kind of reenactment of the convoys during World War II, when a previous HMS London, which was a cruiser, 
had um, gone on a similar diplomatic mission to set up the convoys from the Allies to the Russians uh, during World War II, which started after Russia came in on our side. HMS London was sent as a an ambassador to uh, to go out around the north of, of of Norway and then go and visit Murmansk and Archangel. And then just as we were about to set sail, the hardliners coup took place in Moscow with uh, Gorbachev trapped in his summer holiday home and uh, nobody knew what was going on and we thought the Cold War was coming back. But we went up to Rosyth and left aboard HMS London and then sailed up around the top wondering, A, you know, what kind of reception would we get in the Barents Sea and B, you know, was it still on and is the Cold War about to resume? And so we proceeded, it was quite good weather, we proceeded around the top of Norway um, into uh, the Barents Sea and then wondered what was going to happen and occasionally a Russian jet would fly over and then a, a sovereignty class destroyer appeared on the horizon and then it appeared the trip was on and then this whole kind of flotilla of um russian warships and aircraft flying over along with a hospital ship with a load of british and russian veterans was on board and we realized then that this whole thing was going to happen and so then we went down the inlet uh tim O'Mansk and saw basically the state of the um the russian navy which was a state of collapse at that time um, and with you know old hulks drawn up on the on the side of the inlet and uh, basically a lot of ships in port and uh, but they still sent out a fair few because there were exercises off off the uh, off off the coast you know in the Barents uh, after the visit and there was a tango class submarine a diesel submarine which appeared uh, just off uh, HMS London and uh, these two guys were sent out onto the casing and they assembled a saluting gun uh, which we were sort of watching with quite quite aghast at the sort of waves washing over the uh, these two guys they fired a salute on this little saluting gun which sort of popped out of the casing then put it away and then climbed back in the submarine and it went under the sea and as legend has it and at the time I you know I wrote about it and sometimes you, you do wonder if this happened they fired a torpedo at us as part of this World War II reenactment. And it was a practice torpedo. I mean, I don't want to over-exaggerate it. It was a sort of orange wire-guided thing without a warhead in it. But it came at came at this quite high speed, and uh, we weren't aware of it. And the captain of HMS London, Mark Stanhope, who was a uh, first sea lord later and had been a captain of uh, SSNs up in the Barents during the Cold War, was sort of quite astonished, as were other people, watching this thing come in and it, it kind of London had to make evasive action so did this Royal Fleet Auxiliary Tanker so this wire guided practice torpedo went by and uh, I just sort of had in my in my head I had this image of um, of the Russians who were controlling this sort of practice torpedo which if it had hit London which had a very thin skin might have punched a hole in her could well have done I just imagine these Russians you know, on the controls of this thing, go, yes, now we get them. (laughs) At the end, they think it's over. You know, we've got them. So it was a weird, it was an amazing time to go there uh, with, you know, the the hardliners crew collapsing, us going down there to Murmansk and then um, over to Archangel. It was just an amazing trip, you know, fantastic. And full full of incident. It must have been incredible going into basically the lair of, the Soviet Navy and and seeing what it had come to over over the years. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there was. Um, I do remember there was the. Uh, I think it was called the actually called the Gorshkov at the time, 
uh, was one of their their helicopter stroke anti submarine cruiser carriers that they had for their own short takeoff of vertical landing um, aircraft, flashing a signal in the sort of grime grimy mist and uh, of welcome as we went down past Severomorsk. And um, uh, there was a Helix helicopter, a Russian Navy Helix helicopter, circling London as she kind of processed down. And they were definitely sort of taking photos of the London to see what what sensor she had and what she looked like. And I, and I know there was a Royal Navy photographer because I stood beside him and saw him, saw him at work with a landscape camera sort of cr- taking photos of the state of the Russian fleet, and in fact, the whole inlet. So even then, there was uh, although there was a newfound amity and there was plenty of vodka drunk and toast made to the end of the Cold War, there was certainly still an edge to keeping tabs. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I found that really powerful that 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 scene that you that you paint there right at the the end of the Cold War. And I think you know what what your book tells us is that obviously there was the the confrontation in in central europe but that the most dangerous sort of area of confrontation was in reality under the sea yeah and what i wanted to ask you is whether there's any efforts being made to better honor the sacrifice of submariners in the uk yeah i think um that aspect can be forgotten that um people do focus on the mass tank formations in Central Europe, and that's, it was very, you know, tense and uh, also quite a dangerous theatre, I suppose. But I, I think this, the the silent war, the cat and mouse game at sea that went on uh, for decades was probably the most dangerous because those guys, whether they were Russian, American, or, or British, were all in close company with. Uh, submarines armed with warshot torpedoes or nuclear missiles and nu- nuclear pad as well. And certainly in terms of the Royal Navy, I think it is overlooked that for many years the submariners would would basically cut themselves off from their families, sacrifice their family life and uh, go off in these boats and, and go up into the Barents Sea or out deep into the Atlantic and basically keep tabs on what the other side was doing and keeping the deterrent safe, but also ensuring that we knew what the Russians were doing so that that, that Cold War never turned hot. And as, as, in terms of submarine warfare history across the piece, the Cold War, I think, can be neglected sometimes. You know, it doesn't have its own museum. And there is actually an effort underway at the moment, a proposal to use HMS Courageous, which was one of these submarines that went and did this dangerous work as a, as a, a key part of a, of a broader Cold War Royal Navy Museum that will also look at the surface part as well as the submarines and the maritime patrol aircraft as well and other elements, you know, the Royal Marines, for example, in Norway and the northern flank. Uh, but, you know, there's a lot of stuff to look at and that that is a proposal that's just been looked into. It's only a feasibility study at the moment to have a, a, a Royal Navy Cold War Museum in Devonport, which is the naval base and dockyard, a huge naval base and dockyard in Plymouth. And there's also another effort underway at the National Arboretum uh, to to create a a Submariners Memorial there too. So there's two efforts underway, and that Submariners Memorial there is is a project, a big project that's underway also. I think those two efforts will pay tribute 
to, you know, the submarine service and uh, sacrifice and and sometimes, you know, uh, the lives lost and the immense effort that they've conducted in war and peace, really. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I would like to try and support that as 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 much as possible because I think it it is important that this part of the Cold War is remembered properly. You've been listening to Ian Ballantyne, the author of Hunter Killers or Undersea Warriors, as it's published in the US. There will be links in the show notes to purchase the book. Um, If you use those links, you will be helping to support the podcast too. And we have further photos, videos and information on this episode in our show notes, which will show as a link in your podcast app. Now, this podcast would not exist without our generous Patreons, and I would like to especially thank our Politburo level members who contribute a generous 30 US dollars a month each to help keep us on the air. They are Tony Sowards, Sam Hardwick, Nicholas Butter, Jeffrey Jones, Matthew Comstock, Frederick Esposito, and Peter Ryan. Don't forget, if you'd like to get one of those Cold War Conversations coasters help keep us on the air, then head over to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. If you can't wait for the next episode, do visit our Facebook discussion group where listeners just like you continue the Cold War Conversation. Just search for Cold War Conversations in Facebook. Thank you very much for listening. It is really appreciated. Goodbye. not enjoying the ads well you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate by becoming a monthly or annual supporter you'll enjoy ad-free listening become a part of our community receive the sought after cold war conversations drinks coaster and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve cold war history 
Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information.